Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. American soccer fans, welcome to episode 125 of the USA Soccer Cast. We are bringing you everything about the U.S. national teams, the players, the leagues, and everything else that impacts the game of soccer in these United States. I'm Donald Wine. Today, we continue our series of interviews with candidates for U.S. soccer vice president. That election will take place the weekend of February 8th at U.S. soccer's annual general meeting in Dallas. Earlier this week, We had an interview with Nathan Goldberg. I encourage you to check out the full interview on episode number 124. On this episode, we welcome Mike Cullina. He is the CEO of U.S. Club Soccer and sits on the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors as a youth council representative. He is also the chair of the Referee Committee, vice chair of the Yates Implementation Committee, and a member of the Technical Development and Commercial Committee on the board. Cullina had agreed to come on the show to answer questions about his candidacy and speak on issues that are important to fans. However, back on January 13th, Mike Colonna withdrew his candidacy and endorsed Dr. Pete Sophie for vice president. However, he has graciously honored his commitment to appear on the show and still address some of these questions. So without further ado, here's that interview with Mike Colonna. We are here with Mike Colonna, the CEO of U.S. Club Soccer and the Youth Council representative on U.S. Soccer's board of directors. Mike was a candidate for U.S. Soccer Vice President, but we recently withdrew from the race. Still, he's here to answer some questions that have been collected by fans and on behalf of fans interested in being informed about the governance of the Federation. So, Mike, great to talk to you, and thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. Yeah, I'd committed to this when I was in the race, and so, uh, yeah, I appreciate you still having me on. No, we appreciate you honoring that. That's that's great. Uh, we have questions in several categories that we hope to get to, but I want to start with a simple question. As I mentioned, you were a candidate for Vice President, you recently withdrew your candidacy. Running for any elected position requires a huge commitment, takes a lot to put yourself out there. So what made you decide to want to run for Vice President, and why did you ultimately decide to remove yourself from the race? I've been on the board, I think, uh, 2019. I joined the board and then had a short stint um, in between when I was the at-large rep and back on as a youth rep uh, where I wasn't, um, ironically, during CBA negotiations. So uh, happy for that. I missed that one. But, um, you, you know, and one of the things that I've recognized is is the value of a potentially strong partnership between the vice president and the president, um, along with the CEO and the staff. Um, I, I think it's it's uh, that relationship has has grown with me and, and, and the team o- over the course of time, um, including when we went through some difficult, you know, challenges there in 2020. And so really it was a matter of, of what does that partnership look like and how, how could we work together on the things that, that I think are important to me and to, to, to our membership in the youth, uh, as well as the, the Federation as a whole. 
you know, I, I looked at this as we're going through an entire review of the ecosystem. And, you know, would I be of value in the role of vice president helping to lead us through an ecosystem review and a potential of changes to, to, to the way we are doing business currently uh, to improve the sport? Or would, you, you know, my role there be somehow counter to, to us moving that forward? And, and so, and the other thing that was really important to me is because I live just outside of D.C., um, you know, as the VP, the, the title itself gives a little bit of gravitas to, to being able to go down on the hill and, and deal with some of the safe sport issues that are out there. So those are the things that drove me. And, you know, as we got deeper into the campaign and talking with folks, you know, I realized that some of the, the issues that we have are, are maybe even deeper um, and, and more legacy based than they needed to be. And ultimately just had to make a decision that because I'm already on the board, because I'm already leading several of the really important committees and the work that we're doing, um, I, I think that, it, that, that the last month of this and, and taking a couple of weeks off as my role as CEO of U.S. Club Soccer to go and campaign, what's the risk reward? What's the value of doing that um, for a non-paid volunteer, non-voting position? You know, I gave up my vote once on the board in the governance task force uh, to ensure that we passed that the first time when we were at a standstill in logjam. We had 22 seats for 21 votes. And I volunteered. I said, you know, let, let me spend the next year as a non-voting member of the board, uh, put in a sunset provision to make sure that we get this passed and we stay in, 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 in alignment with the USOPC. Uh, thankfully, USL said, hey, I'll split that year with you. And we got to the point where we are now where the vice president doesn't have the votes any longer. Um, so I was willing to do that for the good of the, of the group, but um, you know, in analyzing it and thinking through it, it, it no longer seemed like I was going to have the type of impact on the things that we need to have in that seat that I couldn't have in this one. So uh, yeah. So I stepped aside and, and, and let the other two candidates uh, do their thing. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate, first of all, that candor and, and how you arrived at that process, but also some of the angles that you mentioned. Notably, I live in D.C. as well. So having the vice president and having that involvement with Capitol Hill, it, especially in a year um, that's going to be a political one, obviously, with the elections. I, I really appreciate that angle of it and how that governance happens. But when you think about that, what about that makes it super important, especially in a year where you know, there's a lot going on politically in the United States. How do you use, how does U.S. soccer use their relations in the, in this year to kind of break through the news cycle, so to speak, the political news cycle and get those issues like safe sport addressed? Well, they're doing the work already. You know, Mona and Emily and Allison, Bria and team, um, you know, they're doing the work already and, 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 building those relationships and, and, and working through both sides of the hill uh, to address these concerns, that work is happening. Uh, I, I think the difference is for me is, you, you know, just before this, I was on our risk management review panel call for U.S. club soccer, where we're reviewing um, any of the flagged background screenings. And, and we're one of the only organizations that does the U.S. OPC level background screening. 
I spend almost every Thursday reviewing, um, you know, reported concerns related to a myriad of issues in, in safeguarding compliance audit. And so it's what I do. And so I think I have a, a, a firsthand knowledge of, of the flaws um, as well as potential solutions. And, you know, I think the team has done a remarkable job on both sides of the hill now in, in building that. I think for the first time in a while or maybe ever, they're listening to what the flaws are related to the Center for Safe Support. And I think, look, the, the center is well-intentioned. I think that they they want to get this right. There's no question about it. Um, but it's not easy. And it's not, you know, and U.S. soccer is different than the other NGBs because of our size, uh, because of our our, our you know, financial wherewithal, we can do more, um, you know, but, but even within U.S. soccer, the, the way that an adult participant or any participant is treated um, in the response and resolution for the Center for Safe Sport versus the state associations is insane. Um, you, you know, the, the states don't have the ability to, to suspend or disqualify a coach once the center takes jurisdiction over a case, even if they administratively close it in 24 hours, we can and we do. Um, so these are the types of loopholes that need to get closed. And when you deal with it every week, every Thursday, every Friday, as part of the job, I think, you, you know, I can add to that, regardless of whether we're blue side or red side and talking to humans about human problems. Uh, but the, the foundation, the groundwork, the athletes have stepped up. Cindy has stepped up. The entire team has stepped up. And now we have their attention. And and so, you know, unfortunately, the uh, uh, the speaker situation from earlier this fall postponed a hearing that I think would have been extremely valuable. Hopefully, that get that gets back on the books. It seems we're we're closer and closer to a to a two person race here in the presidential election. So. Chaos will ensue for the next year, of course, um, which, which unfortunately means that these issues that are important uh, to the safety due process for everybody involved are going to get pushed further and further back. But our team is just not going to let it. They're, you know, we're just going to continue to push through and, and put pressure on anyone that needs to have pressure applied to to, to address these issues. Well, we definitely appreciate that. And I know how difficult, again, I live in D.C., the, the cycles, as you know, has been going on for, for years and years here. Um, but to break through that, uh, hopefully you guys get uh, everything that you want accomplished. I want to stay within U.S. soccer governance and, and talk about the National Training Center that is moving to uh, Atlanta or just south of Atlanta uh, in a few years. Obviously, you're going to have a lot of things under one roof. What's the, what do you see uh, in your position as the biggest benefit to having everything under one roof down there in Georgia. One nation, one team. One nation, one team. You know, we have offices in, in Kansas City and L.A. And um, we've got in, in Chicago, obviously, we've got an extended national teams program that is 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 having to uh, claw for gym space or field or, or you know, ground space. And, and now we're going to provide world-class opportunities to all of our extended national teams and, and not just our YNT, um, but, but all 27 now will be together. Uh, and, and I think that that will provide an opportunity to build a culture across all of our disciplines and all of the, um, 
you know, age groups, et cetera, that I, that I think you can't, you just can't replicate if you're not together. And that's not to say we're still going to have staff. Obviously, you know, it's a large organization and we're a large country and we're going to need folks throughout the country. But, but, but to be able to bring our teams to one location, to be able to control the environment for the highest possible performance, to give all of our athletes the best chance of being successful and winning, uh, you know, I, I don't think it can be understated what, what that will mean. And so I, I think the biggest, the biggest thing is it's just part of the strategic plan, one nation, one team, bring it all together. Um, it allows Matt Crocker and team on the sporting side to oversee in a much more consistent manner um, and, 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 and then provide feedback to the, to the rest of the staff and to the board about, you know, what resources do we need? How, how do we properly invest, you know, in, in each of, of the teams to be successful? So I think that's the biggest thing. Um, a place to plant your flag. It doesn't, you know, obviously it doesn't mean we're going to be playing all of our games there, but, but um, a place to call home, you know, they're, they're just, uh, I spend many a day on the road these days and going home is just going home. And and right. we've never been able to do that at the Federation. So it, it's, it's incredibly exciting. And, and it was nice to be down in Atlanta for the official unveil and, and party or a, a few weeks ago, but yeah, now the work actually begins. And I'm super glad to hear about the extended national teams and the resources that, as you mentioned, they've been kind of having to scrap for over the last few years. They'll be able to have, you know, dedicated training facilities for themselves. And and I think that part might be, in my mind, the biggest benefit there because they've been they deserve it. And they and you know having everybody on one roof will definitely help them as well uh, succeed. I did want to offer uh, another question that's related to that kind of lumping everything under one umbrella. You're on the referee committee, if memory serves correctly. And this is a question that combines what you're working on with the state of coaching. Obviously certification programs, increasing prices of everything. How do you, how does us soccer continue to make higher caliber coaching and, and refereeing available and having those certification courses available for people who can't afford that, you know, the travel and the increasing prices, how do you level playing field and get more people involved in those areas? Well, for good or for ill, I'm the chair of the referee committee um, now and, and uh, I, I took that over here in, in 23 and, and hopefully, you know, Cindy will, will, will allow me the chance to continue there in the next cycle. Um, I've been a referee off and on for 30 plus years. Um, my son's a regional referee. Uh, JT's a referee. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nelson Akwari, who's the, the chair of, of the technical development committee, has become a referee. So, you know, this is important to us. Uh, this is something that that we recognize. I, I remember during the shutdown in 2020 in late spring, I said to the board um, at one point, we're going to come out of this in a referee crisis. Uh, there's no question in my mind we're already trending to one. And we're going to have uh, referees who learn to live without the supplemental income realize they don't need the nonsense associated with officiating um, and not come back. And it's exactly what's happened. So now we're in a crisis. Make no mistake. We've registered 30,000 fewer referees this year than we did in 2017. Fewer than one and a half percent of all referees have, have progressed past a grassroots certification. So, uh, you know, you could say ref abuse is a problem. You could say that registration and access to 
uh, being able to register in real time is a problem. You, you know, every week you will see, regardless of the area that you live in, a cry for help from the assigners every Friday and Saturday morning saying these are the games that are uncovered, but there's no ability for them to attach a link to say, hey, go here and get registered because the process is so convoluted and difficult that we can't get folks who have been a part of the game for years and years and years registered in real time. You have to, right? So so you could say that the barrier to entry related to cost and the purchase of uniforms is a problem. Um, you know, you could say that the the assigning mechanism, the inability to share data is a problem. The individual referee progressing and mentoring and coaching and development is a problem. You could pick any one of those areas and say it's a problem and you're right. Uh, they all are an issue. And so, you, you know, what I did when I took over Refco is, is very early on in our meetings, I realized that we're not going to have political solutions to real world problems. And and so I, I made a proposal to the board that, that passed here in December that said, you, you know, we need to change the scope of the referee committee and, and work with our technical development committee to be able to put together working groups that are filled with folks who do this every day versus just people elected to solve the riddle. Um, when, when, when Carlos appointed me to be the, the, the chair of the coaching working group of the, of, of the youth task force back in 18, 19, whatever that was, 1920. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that came out of that group was how, how do we establish standards in coach education that are shared across the country the standard of the education is the same. The standard of the instructor is the same. It, it's not, we don't have state borders that determine what a D license looks for. It looks like anymore. When I was a state director of coaching in Nebraska, I wrote my own D license. That's insane. Doesn't make any damn sense. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. And then once we have established that, how do we give our member organizations access to be able to deliver the end result of that is now this year, you know, U.S. Club Soccer is going to do 13 B licenses. We're going to do we're going to do three or four times as many B licenses ourselves as the Federation has traditionally done in a calendar year. And the states are going to do another 14 or 15. So we're, we're going to do almost 30 B licenses this year and every single course filled in 24 hours. So it was a long path to get there, but we need to go back and look at the referee world in the same way. How do we establish a standard that is the same across the country? Um, how, how do we ensure that registration and the process to getting registered is not a huge barrier to entry? Because it is a pain. You know, I just did my re-registration about a month ago. It is an absolute pain. Um, how do we focus on the journey of the individual, the referee, in this process? From start to finish, I want to be a referee. I want to be developed. Why do people quit anything? It's because they're not they're not enjoying it, and, that, and they're not enjoying it because they're not any good at it. So, you know, what are we doing to coach them, to mentor them, to improve them? But we have to get them in the door first. Um, and so, you know, back to my point on the working groups, the first working group that we're standing up that will be announced um, hopefully next week, uh, will, will, will be uh, a referee working group on ref abuse. And that working group has now been approved uh, by Cindy. 
the members were notified actually just yesterday. So we're waiting for all the responses so we can have our first meeting next week. And we're going to meet every two weeks until this particular process is done is, is, is reviewing and looking at ref abuse holistically in terms of defining what it actually is, first of all, because the definitions are unclear. And then how do we adjudicate it? What is the club's responsibility? What is the league's responsibility? What is the member organization's responsibility? What is the federation's responsibility in all of that? And we have a number of different policy proposals that have come from different member organizations. But before we start jumping to changing policy, we actually need to look at what we're trying to accomplish, put some pilots in place, vet them out, and then, you know, hopefully by the time we get to our May board meeting, we can look at 531-9 and 10 and say, okay, that policy, now we've addressed ref abuse, ref assault, um, and we have a more unified structure. Now, you know, this is a, this is a 16-ounce steak. We're going to have to take bites at it. We're not going to eat the whole thing at once. So, you know, that's the first one. The ref abuse, ref assault is the one that we've identified as our number one working group model. There are other things happening on the digital side. We have pilots in place now to improve the registration process. I think we have seven or eight states right now that are that are doing that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that pilot that that will improve. How do we just get more folks into the door quicker? Uh, because right now, you, you know, you've got to think three or four months in advance. Oh, I want to be a referee in the fall, or I want to be a referee in the spring. Because you got to go online, you got to do all of your things online your background screening, your safe sport, et cetera. And then you got to go find an in-person course to go learn how to wave a flag. Uh, we need to be able to do this in real time and get more people involved and then coach them up. So, yeah, so that, that look, the re- referees is an absolute crisis. It might be the number one crisis facing the sport right now because if we don't have enough quality referees, the 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 game itself suffers. The competition suffers. Health, self, safety, welfare of the player suffers, but the quality of competition suffers. If you can't manage a game at the level that the game is at, then then you are holding the game back. You're not going to do an ECNL game the same way you're going to do a rec game. And right now, 98.5% of the referees are like in both camps because there's no way to bifurcate who should be where and when and why. I think you just painted a picture that, you know, again, as fans, we don't necessarily get access to all of that information. What goes into someone saying, I want to become a referee and some of the, you know, all the hoops that they have to jump through just to referee one game at any quality, much less the quality that's required uh, for some of the leagues and some of these teams. So I, I definitely appreciate that answer. You mentioned in there just all the different people who are involved in this, all the member organizations. As you know, there's a ton of them. There's member or state organizations for youth and adult there's club you know us us club soccer referees players athletes you know the extended national teams everybody so there's so many of these but obviously these member organizations aren't always on the same page as you know how does the board work through all of that to bring all these entities together and hopefully keep them moving in the same direction well it hasn't done a very good job candidly (laughs) um you know, it, it's been a it's, it's been a difficult few years, obviously, for the board focused on other areas that, that that don't have anything to do with improving a player or a referee or a coach or the business of of, of running soccer. 
Um, and, and it feels like that we are coming out of that better for the experience. It, the, the leadership team that's in place at the Federation is, is fantastic. They're, they're, they're wonderful to work with. And, and I spend as much time with that team as, as I do with the U.S. club team, quite frankly. Um, but uh, they, they, you, you know, uh, the ecosystem review that is going on right now is aimed at starting to understand that we have, you know, Michael Lazar, who also runs our, our um, um, uh, Mac member advisory committee, I think is what it's called uh, made up of, of representatives from, from different members, 20 some are on that group. He, he's also meeting with the membership in real time. Uh, the team in Anaheim at the convention had open office hours and met with dozens of the member organizations. These are the things that never happened before. Uh, and so they're doing a lot more listening than talking and, and trying to understand now the good and the bad of that is when you're 118, 16, 20, whatever number it is today of, of member organizations, the challenge is we all recognize the same problems. I don't have to go state to state to understand what their issues are. I'm in Virginia. I know Virginia's issues. I know Washington's issues. I know Texas's issues because I've lived in this ecosystem for 30 years. Now, there's nuance. There's nuance, socioeconomics, climate, um, you know, different operators with different motives in different parts of the country that aren't always pure. So there's nuance. But generally, we're all recognizing the same problem. The challenge is we would all have our own solution. And so now how do you rally around that? And so that's what the team is doing in the ecosystem review is to say, okay, at least we understand from a starting point what folks believe are the set of issues that we're trying to solve for. And now we can start to go and solve for them. And, and look, it's going to be impossible that everybody walks away and goes, yeah, that's the right decision because there's just, if there's more than one person in the room, hopefully there's more than more, one opinion. Um, but hopefully we can coalesce around a general set of principles and guidelines for what we're trying to solve for and then go solve for that. Um, it, it, you know, and, and the other thing that's become clear to me that I, that I always suspected, but, but was clear to me is that, that the challenges aren't just between member organizations. Um, it's easy to say that, you know, U.S. club soccer versus X state versus USYS versus, you know, we actually speak way more than people would recognize. You know, I, I've been on calls with USYS folks this week. Um, you know, we talk all the time. Um, I talk to state associations all the time, not not in any kind of um, negative way either. It's all positive about how we can start to work together differently. We're we're starting to recognize very clearly the conflict is, is the technical, the executive or the political side of the game. So even within member organizations, if you get the technical leaders of the member organizations together, generally you're going to hear the same things. It's not, they don't have to wear their patch and you wouldn't know which organization they're from. But if you're an executive whose job it is to manage and run the business and keep the lights on, you're going to have a different set of circumstances for what your opinion is on the ecosystem and who's good, bad, or indifferent in it. And if you're in the political or the governance side, you're going to have another set of circumstances or issues because of 
of, of, of how the moving parts changes your role potentially or perceived to. I actually don't think it changes. I think it's more perception than reality. So, so we're starting to see that, that, that it's not just because even within the members, if you take USASA as an example or USYS as an example, which is, you know, a, a, a conglomerate of membership, um, and serves a broader group of, of, of member organizations defined by, by, uh, US soccer. They don't agree internally because their circumstances are different and the people are different. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think it's a very interesting exercise, but I think it's one that's incredibly useful. It's one that we have to do. It, it, and I'm optimistic. I'm genuinely optimistic about where we're headed and how we can change our sport, not just for the short term, but forever um, in a way that 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 lowers the barrier to entry. Um, in a way that has more people playing for longer, become lifelong fans, and produce world-class players. Um, not just for our men's and women's senior team, but we need more exposure for our extended teams as well. Because I don't think enough folks know about the opportunities that exist within those teams. We will be back with more from Mike Cullina after this. Hey everyone, are you looking for the latest gear for your U.S. national teams, Major League Soccer, the NWSL, or any other team in the world of soccer? The USA SoccerCast has affiliate partnerships that are ready to help you out. Head to linktree.com slash USA SoccerCast where we have links to Homage, Fanatics, the MLS Store, and Breaking Feet. You can get the jersey, shirt, hat, or accessory you're looking for to support your team while also saving some money and helping this show in the process. Again, linktree.com slash USA SoccerCast. Click on the links and get your gear. And we thank you as always for your support of the show. We are back and we resume our interview with Mike Colonna, the CEO of U.S. Club Soccer and the Youth Council representative to U.S. Soccer's Board of Directors. I want to shift to kind of looking at the next five years. Of course, the next five years are going to be super important for the United States from a soccer landscape. The The peak of it would be the 2026 World Cup, which, of course, we're co-hosting 2027 Women's World Cup, of which we are bidding alongside Mexico what are some of the legacy bills that you think need to come out of that World Cup that will benefit, you know, United States soccer long after that tournament or those tournaments are done? Of course, we have the Olympics in 2028, but what what things are the board focusing on to make it where 2026 leaves a lasting legacy that helps benefit American soccer? Yeah, I, I think we've got to look at 2024 um, as part of that legacy build. I think what happened in New Zealand, Australia can't be lost on some of the motivation for the ecosystem review that exists now. Now it's impossible that you were going to win a third, you know, not impossible. It's very difficult to win three in a row for sure. Mm -hmm. But the way that we performed, whatever the reasons are, is the way that we performed. We all saw it. You know, I was there. I witnessed it. I felt it. 
Um, and so, you know, when folks talk about this moment in time and this opportunity that exists, I think we focus too much on the competitions that are coming. It's go- 2026 is going to be the largest event in the history of, of our planet. It, it, you know, it, the, the economic impact, the sporting impact, the growth of our game is all real. If we don't do the work now, we won't take advantage of it. Um, and so, you know, the, the moment is not just those. The moment is we are at a point in time where relationships between the member organization is as good as it's ever been. The, the communication, the talk, the leadership within U.S. soccer is as good as it's ever been, at least in my experience. And I haven't been around it that long, but I've been around it long enough to say, you know, over over that over the last decade. Um but we're all sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, the, the, the zero sum approach to youth soccer in our country is something that none of us love. Right. And so, um, you know, one member grows at the expense of another instead of our, our successes being shared. We are all to the point where we recognize it's broken. And so, you know, admitting you have a problem is the first step in solving it for sure. Um, and, and, and that's where we are. So the moment is time is, is that we should take advantage of the opportunity because our members want the change. We want to be different as a soccer nation and how we are growing the game and developing world-class players. Um, and if we do that work now, then what you're talking about, Donald, in terms of taking advantage of the legacy from, you know, uh, whether it's Copa or hopefully two World Cups or the Olympics, then it can become real versus just, um, uh, you know, influx of cash that, uh, you know, we've had an influx of cash before. The Federation was sitting on a large chunk of cash and put together, you know, this 10-year plan of how it was going to invest. And once it was done with that plan, we were exactly where we started. Mm-hmm. Nothing changed other than we spent a lot of money. So, so, you know, if, if we don't actually do the work now to prepare for it, then, it, then, it, then those are just going to be the best events ever hosted in, in, in the history of our planet, but they're not actually going to have a, a lasting legacy that it could have on the sport. So I, I want to use that to kind of shift to uh, the pyramid. And when I think about the pyramid, the domestic pyramid for, for professional leagues, both on the men's and women's sides. We obviously a lot of fans want to push towards a promotion relegation format. I know this is talked about and debated in all corners of the internet and all corners probably of that boardroom. But between all of those different leagues, I think the most important thing that we are facing is continued stability. I think the great thing about our leagues is that they're progressing because they've become more stable. How do you continue to maintain that stability of these leagues, having them work together to create this pyramid that is, you know, whatever whatever format we use remains strong yeah i mean, i'd need to be talked through the pro rel argument a little bit more to understand what folks think it would actually do um you, you know from a sporting merit standpoint obviously you know i think merit just generally is something that's been more and more forgotten 
um, worldwide, but certainly in our country. But from a, from 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 a sporting merit standpoint, of course, pro rel um, in any whether it's um, you know within our leagues or um, the youth leagues, you go okay. Well, it, it, it makes sense. If you win, you should advance, and if not, you go to find a level that's appropriate. Um, you know, but but I'm not convinced it's the panacea. Uh, I'm not convinced that. England, which I, I think we would say the Premier League's the top league in the world. England hasn't won a World Cup in 66, since 66, right? Um, I think whether well, there have been 12 or 14 World Cups in that time, they either haven't qualified or advanced out of the the group stage about half of the time. So, you, you know, I think since 2001, I don't know, 40 50 clubs in, in, in England have, have gone into administration. Now, some have come out. So it's, I don't think it's this panacea. And England is the size of Alabama geographically. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you, you just can't compare. We, there are lessons to be learned. There are things that we absolutely need to do. You know, the investment that could go back into the sport at the youth levels to lower the barrier of entry with training and compensation, et cetera, would be real for sure. And we, we, we need to look at that, but I'm, you know, I understand the argument um, from a sporting side, but from a business side, I don't necessarily see how, um, you know, a pro rel solves that riddle. I mean, Gotham was dead last, last year. Are you going to relegate them? Well, all of a sudden they have some investors that come in, they happen to live in the largest market in the world. So now you're able to attract players for maybe a little bit less because of the commercial appeal. And they're the NWSL champs. That doesn't happen in a pro-rel world. You know, and they're not the only ones. Now, look, there's there's a lot of pro games that you get midway, you know, through the season or last half of the season, the game's unwatchable. Players don't have the passion for it. But that's different than the business of stability. And, you know, what are we now, 30 years of MLS, something like that? And um, we haven't lost a club in a while um, at that level. Now, USL and, and, and some of the other leagues, of course, it, it, is, a, it is a tougher, tougher, um, you know, uh, hill to climb. And we looked at our, when I was at the club of, of adding a USL2 team. And I think the the club probably will do that in the next year or so, but that you know that's obviously not a business decision. That's more of a, you know, USL two is is um, aimed at, at at you know more of a community and, and supporting your local player. So you know, but I don't live in the pro world. I've not worked in the front office. Um, I would be the last person to tell MLS or NWSL or USL how to run their business. What I do know is for us to be a successful soccer nation, we need successful professional leagues. And we should be doing everything we can to support the growth of those leagues and the stability of those leagues. That is not my area of expertise. I have opinions as a fan, but I would be making it up if I said this is what they should do or not do. Um, I, I think it's for them to decide. And, and look, NWSL is now past a decade after, you know, multiple attempts that have failed. So they are doing something right. USL is expanding its footprint. They are doing something right. Now, we are losing clubs along the way, and it is harder 
for sure. And I get it. And, 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 and so I just don't think there's a magic bullet here. When, you know, focusing on that, I know the USL you mentioned has expanded. They're also expanding on the women's side. On the women's side, we have, you know, the U.S. Super, I'm sorry, USL Super League coming in this mm-hmm. summer. We have the W League already in place. NWSL is expanding. A lot of calls from people about increased competition for the clubs on the women's side, namely a U.S. Open Cup style of tournament. Is that something that U.S. soccer might be focused on? And if so, is there a timeline in place for gauging when that might happen? I don't think there's any question it's something that, that the Federation's interested in in doing. And I think personally, let me take off of my board hat for a minute. I don't want to speak for the Federation as it relates to this. I'll speak for myself. I think we need to have a Women's Open Cup. Um, but uh, yes, I think that uh, you know timing of that and how that all comes together. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not privy to that. I'm not on the pro league task force. I'm not on the open cup committee. I have enough going on in the committees that I'm on. So I, you know, I get updates from time to time for the, for the folks that are focused and and become educated in that and how and when and why. And and I will fully support it when, when it comes up ready to launch, if it comes up ready to launch, which I, Mm -hmm. which I hope, which I hope it does. I want to shift to a couple more questions. I know we have a few more minutes with you, but uh, one question I wanted to get to, uh, is in the area of inclusion. And right now there's been a push to a- expand U.S. soccer's reach in, in finding talent in communities that they aren't necessarily historically targeting. What is U.S. soccer doing right now to be, you know reach out to some of the black, brown, and even native communities that may either be in our inner cities or in the case of the native communities on those rural uh, communities that are hard to reach? So let's go back to what we talked about with the ecosystem review. Right now, a member organization has no incentive at all other than doing the right thing, which the right thing doesn't always make business sense. You can't keep the lights on sometimes doing the right thing. To go into areas where they don't current, we don't currently as a sport exist or, or don't exist within the federation and build programming and invest in programming when as soon as you do those players, those communities, those leagues, et cetera, et cetera, can pick up and move to another member organization. Um, And so we need to have a system in place where we are empowering, not just in terms of knowledge and expertise and money, but in terms of shared success at the local level, our state associations to do exactly what you just said. Um, our ID2 program at, at U.S. Club Soccer is not is open to anybody. You do not have to be a U.S. Club member, and and we go find players anywhere you can. Uh, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult to go into communities where we have not established relationships. We've not built a, um, a an opportunity for for the culture to build between organizations. So what can we do? Um, for our clubs at the local level to say, look, I'm going to also go invest, you know, across the, across the train tracks or across the bridge to, to bring in a whole new um, group of members that don't exist. When I was at Prince William, more than half of our players were non-white. We have a huge Hispanic culture. Um, And I learned a lot about, you know, what that looks like. And we started, 
you know, doing 25 to 30% of all of our communications and marketing in Spanish. We, you know, the, the federation that D license now is available in Spanish. And so we need to do more of that, but, but it all goes back to how collectively we can invest in growing the sport. Uh, we also need a scouting network, a scouting department, first of all, that recognizes and is interested. So we have to make sure that that's true. Um, but then leans on the member organizations to help go into those areas. It can't be, we can't be in a tug of war in talent identification and scouting or just growing the game generally, giving kids opportunities um, in our sport that should be relatively low barrier to entry um, in terms of cost. Should be, not always is, but but should be. And, and so, you know, if we can f- fix is the wrong word, if we can address some of the systemic issues within the ecosystem, and now we can push resources, as I mentioned before, to the local level, state associations and clubs, to invest and grow in those areas without fear of a negative impact to the business, because now all of our success is shared, that's when we will start to grow the game. Right now, a state isn't incentivized to go do that because as soon as the players um, or the league grows beyond whatever they determine is, is being serviced locally, they can pick up and move to another half dozen member organizations and financially that investment just walks out the door. Um, and, it, you know, we can't always do things for the money, of course. But you also we're running businesses, and 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 they have to keep the lights on, and the 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 return on the investment in terms of doing the right thing isn't always enough if you're insolvent at the end of the day. So I think this ecosystem review will absolutely address those systemic issues of us being in communities and areas of the country. And by the way, it's just not the black and brown communities. There's a lot of rural and farm communities. Mm-hmm. Um, in the flyover states where where the sport isn't isn't represented as well, um, so it's not always just about color and culture. Um, it, it, it's about opportunity and access, and where you know just volume, you know, uh, of of folks as well. So it, it's all tied together. This is all part of why we need this review. One of the last questions I have in the area of U.S. soccer governance, we want to go back to something that you had mentioned. Earlier, as I know you're a member, uh, I believe, vice chair of the Yates Implementation Committee. Mm-hmm. It's been a lot of work done. And I, I've personally been involved in that work. So I thank you for uh, your leadership in those areas. But as we continue to evolve, what, you know, as we're implementing some of these, uh, you know, things that come out of the Yates report, how is the focus going to continue to be on these women's players and also the youth players who, uh, who right now are having issues with safe sport? How do you address that to con- ensure? that they remain safe and able to speak out about abuse or any other you know, issues that may come their way? Well, I think we have to be careful not to just um, assume that, that all abuse is happening to females. Um, mm. you, you know, the, the, there's a lot of abuse happening on the guy side. Not a lot. There's abuse happening on the guy side of the, of the game. It's just different abuse. Um, and it's tolerated differently for good or for real. It just is. And we're now waking up to, you know, what you and I experience, maybe experienced growing up just isn't okay. Um, and, you know, we become what we experience. And, and so this shift in, in understanding, you know, how you can speak to, how you can treat 
what is right, what is wrong, um, anybody, let alone an athlete and certainly not a child, um, is evolving. And I think we have to recognize that, you know, the, the, there's a there's a lot of behaviors even 10 or 15 years ago that you didn't even bat an eye at that just that we're not OK. Um, so so look, I, I think that that that. Uh, continuing to address the center for safe sport and giving them having them take the most serious allegations, especially related to sexual abuse, assault, um, and misconduct and allowing the member organizations with you within us soccer to deal with, uh, the less serious, but serious, nonetheless offenses, bullying, um, general misconduct, et cetera. I think will be a huge help because, you know, to, to continue to paint the organizations within us soccer or us soccer with past transgressions is, is completely unfair. When Cindy said, we are going to be transparent, we're going to, we are going to produce risk report regardless of what it says. And she stood by that and the board supported her on that. That was a leap of faith. That was when she said it in the boardroom, we all went, are you sure? Maybe we should see this first before we release it. No, we're going to release it because you can't start to heal unless you're being transparent. From that moment on, this organization changed for sure. And the member organizations within U.S. soccer changed for sure. But we need to be more aligned as member organizations. We can't have um, and we work very well with the states when we get an accusation. And a lot of times the coaches are dual registered with a state association or MLS or USL and, and U.S. club soccer. And, and our relationship in the safeguarding compliance departments are, is extremely good because those folks are just focused on safety. Um, mm-hmm. We also have an issue related to due process. You know, this, the center has multiple cases that they've been investigating for over a year. Well, it doesn't seem to be the, the, these, you know, the, you have an allegation, you, you have an alleged victim, you have a perpetrator. It seems like we can solve these things in less than 18 months. I mean, there's one that's more than two years old. They're still investigating. I said, like, what, what, what are we doing here? Um, so, you know, but we also need to educate retaliation retaliation is a violation of map and 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 we have come down hard on coaches that retaliate you know in you know good faith reporting we also have a rise in reporting that when you boil it down you know it comes down to just simple playing time it's not a high percentage but it's a noticeable percentage it's a real number of, of cases where when you look at really what they're alleging, it comes down to my kid didn't play enough. So, you know, to take these in totality, and that's why we use third-party investigators in these things at U.S. Club Soccer, but, but more often than not, the allegation is real and the harm was real. And, you know, we need to have the ability to remove these folks and either have them re-educated because they just they needed a shift or just removed from the sport. Participation in our sport is a privilege. It's not a right. Um, now, we have that ability. The states don't. And by the way, the states are often much closer to the situation. They know more 
then somebody would know at the federal level of investigating because it's part of their community. Yet once the center takes to, you know, uh, takes jurisdiction, the state's tied. The federation's tied. They can't do anything. And that has to change. Uh, that absolutely has to change. But, you, you know, if you report in good faith, we are taking it seriously. Um, we are doing everything we can to ensure that it is being addressed. Um, and if somebody needs to be removed from our sport and disqualified, we disqualify them. Um, if they just need to to um, have some education and development in a in a plan of action to improve, then we'd like to do that as well because you know some of these things, some of the language that's used, is just what they experienced growing up, and you should know better. But it's it's not a life sentence. Um, it's 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 education development. So it's very complicated. Um, you know, safeguarding compliance is a is one of the fastest growing uh, needs in sport generally, but certainly in in our sport. You know, we didn't even have we we had. Um, Greg Hutton, who did, who's our, our COO, did the work and had a, a risk management review panel um, for years. And the amount of time and energy and the work that he put into it is is unbelievable. Um, but now we actually have a full department. We actually have another Monday. We have a, a, a new add to our department of starting. Um, and we plan to add another person in the next six to 12 months as well. So these these departments are just growing with with people, by the way. When you when you interview somebody who's passionate about this, like you, you, it's different, it's different, and um, it, 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 there aren't a lot of them. But when you find the right ones, and we have really good ones in the federation, we have really good ones in U.S. club soccer. It is just different, and you're making the sport safer. As we close out here, I did want to give you a chance. I, I know a lot of people out there. I mentioned you're the CEO of us club soccer and people are probably asking, what is that? What is that organization? Talk to, talk to us a little bit about us club soccer and the work you guys are doing there. Yeah. So we're a national association, um, a member organization of us, us soccer. Um, we will likely push through about 700,000 registered players uh, here in this cycle. Um, when I joined the board as an elected regional board member back in 2015, I think we we're in the mid four hundreds. Um, you know, we are, you know, we are much more than a, than a sanctioning organization. We, we, we consider ourselves thought leaders in the sport. Um, you know, we've built out a full education development department in the last few years. We've built out a full marketing communications department. Um, you know, we've redone our entire registration process so that players, coaches, administrators, board members can get registered much more quickly and effectively. And we catch the bad guys. Um, so, you know, we're, we really consider ourselves thought leaders in the space and our board members, um, our elected board members have to have a minimum of a B license or the European equivalent. Um, and they have to be in a leadership position currently in a youth club. That's a member of ours. And they also have to, obviously have to be a registered uh, participants uh, in U.S. club soccer. So, you know, our leadership team, our board consists of the people who have to implement the very policies that they're passing or writing. And so I think it, it you know, it just changes our approach because when we have a fee increase, well, they have to go to their membership and they have to go to their board and say, okay, well, there's a fee increase and this is why. 
and we're gonna we're gonna implement it when we when we uh, you know um, uh, change to USOP level background screening this last year and and you know that costs money to do and we said safety's not going to be an option we're going straight to it we're, we're going there they're the ones that had to go to their clubs and in, implement it and so I, I think when that happens you have um, you know n- necessarily some built-in goodwill with your members um, we we are largely focused on club development and league development. And I think where the shift has come since U.S. Club was founded in 2001, where it was, you know, U.S. Club soccer and focused on the development of clubs, is now our relationships are equally with our leagues. ECNL is, you know, being our, our largest and most proficient league. Um, you know, and they're, they're, they don't just sanction with us. We don't have sanctioning agreements. We have strategic partnership agreements with them. How are we improving the game? You know, what do you need from us in terms of education of coaches, um, in terms of education of clubs, um, but also the other non-sexy things that come along with, with sanctioning, whether it's insurance or, you know, screenings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that's the organization. Uh, we have 19 member leagues that are part of our NPL platform across the country, um, plus the the um, the NPL, and we have uh, you know a few hundred leagues across the country that that are either in the competitive or rec space. Um, we give them a reasonable level of local autonomy, although you know within the the, the framework of our policies, um, and we're you know we've become pretty serious over the last half decade or so of making sure that that the standards are what, what they need to be uh, related to player health and safety, but also just what should the game look like? If you want to learn more about U.S. Club Soccer, you can go to usclubsoccer.org, learn more about that. Mike Kalina, CEO of U.S. Club Soccer and the Youth Council representative to U.S. Soccer's board of directors. Thanks so much for coming on. I, again, I know in, in this uh, candidacy you removed yourself, but – uh, being able to come on here and spend some time with you, I, I find myself very well versed in the area of soccer governance, and I learned a lot from having this conversation with you. So I appreciate you bringing on. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you to all the fans. I think, um, um, you, you know, I think you know it's really important that we are respecting and, and all of the viewpoints and 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 growing the game, not just at the player or coach level, but what does fandom look like and. Um, And so I really appreciate the platform to be able to talk about it. And anytime you have questions, I'm happy to talk to you. Absolutely. Well, we'll be talking soon. Once again, I'd like to thank Mike Cullina for coming on the show and answering these questions, especially given the fact that he has withdrawn from the race and and still wanted to address some of these issues that face U.S. soccer. I really appreciate him addressing fans via this show. And as I've mentioned today, I have plans to speak with Dr. Pete Sophie, the other remaining candidate, early next week. It's important for fans to hear what these candidates have to say so that they can understand how their election could affect Federation governance. And I think fans should be a part of that discussion. So I encourage you to share this far and wide and also to check out all the other candidates to make an informed decision about who you think would be best to support U.S. soccer in the governance of everything that is American soccer in this country. But that will do it for episode number 125 of the USA SoccerCast. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, follow us on Twitter. We are at USA SoccerCast. Don't forget, we have affiliate programs with Homage, Fanatics, MLS Store, and Breaking Tea. Head to linktree.com slash USA SoccerCast to learn more. 
click those links to those sites and support the show while getting the latest gear. And of course, we encourage topic suggestions as we move forward. You can email them to usasoccercast at gmail.com or tag us on Twitter. We'll talk to you again soon, y'all. Peace.